happy good friday long weekend guys anybody in uh, north america canada states wherever else people celebrate uh, good friday around the world this is rico from the made in china podcast uh this week's episode i interviewed michael michelini serial entrepreneur he's been in china for over nine years tech entrepreneur specifically which is um can be challenging in china but it is an interesting exciting place to 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 be developing tech and and be in that zone and Shenzhen where he's based is the silicon valley of china and he's seen it develop over the night the past nine years um i'm really happy with the quality of interviews we've been doing lately i feel like the people that we're attracting to the podcast uh thankfully because of you guys the listeners like we our listener base is growing we have people reaching out to us i have people giving me ideas as to who we should interview um i've had people introduce me to certain people we should interview so it's really been very fun and, and educative for me specifically with mike um we sat down and and we spoke about you know things like incorporation in hong kong um why that's becoming more difficult uh specifically when it comes to registering a bank account as a business in hong kong um a lot of entrepreneurs the average entrepreneurs are getting rejected why is that how why are the government shutting down on that uh the government how the governments can obviously restrict global entrepreneurship but they're trying to and you know the internet is is obviously making it more difficult for the governments to to restrict those kind of things and uh, we talked about banking in Hong Kong versus China. We we talked about the future of of tech. We we talked about productivity in China. We talked about how to manage a Chinese uh, Chinese team. He's got uh, quite a few pointers for me. Um, he's got multiple podcasts. Actually, he hosts the Global from Asia podcast and uh, China Business Cast, which are ironically my my competition, but. Um, to be honest, I used to listen to those podcasts before I came down to China when I was in Toronto. So it's just pretty cool to have him on the podcast. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from the people that he's interviewed. And I just feel like it was a fantastic interview. We were all over the place. Uh, it was definitely structured, but we we covered a lot of ground for an hour and a half. So without further ado, I'll let you guys enjoy the episode. I don't want to be a product of my environment. I want my environment to be a product of me. <laughs> sure, man. Mike's cool. When you meet someone that doesn't know you at a cocktail party, for example, or some other social setting, how do you answer the question, what do you do? Uh, if I feel like talking to them, I tell them what I really do. If I don't feel like talking to them, I say I'm an English teacher. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I guess so the, the real answer is, I think of my Twitter profile, I say American Internet Dude in China on the Hong Kong border. Yeah, uh, I, yeah I mean, I'm a, I love blogging and internet marketing and Asia, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, uh, I see. I've seen that an American internet dude. I, I think that describes you pretty well. But I think there's a lot of intricacies that you do <laughs> that does, that, sure. that doesn't explain. Um, okay, I know you've written articles about this, but I, I just wanted to ask: Why do you live in in Shenzhen? 
you know, why not Silicon Valley? Why not New York? I know you're in New York before or, or Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, of course, there's the long and the, sh- the long answer and the short answer. But I, yeah, I, I was working in New York for almost almost six years or five years, and I actually live. In, I don't think you might have not seen it, but I lived in San Diego for between New York and China, and oh, I was okay. doing some. Yeah, I read the Four Hour Work Week, Tim Ferriss, uh, awesome book, and uh, yeah, I was working full time e commerce sourcing and. I kind of got bored in San Diego. I had a friend that had a room there to rent. So I rented a room from him on the beach, ocean beach. And, uh, it got really boring for me. And I was <laughs> thinking about, yeah, I was thinking about Silicon Valley. I was really thinking about it, but, uh, for some reason I was just was like, China seems harder mm-hmm. and more of a, like exotic, uh, challenge. And, uh, I guess I also like the international side. Mm-hmm. So. Before I knew Shenzhen, I didn't even know what Shenzhen was. I think when I first came to Asia, I flew to Hong Kong, and you know, I just think for Hong Kong, even though it's a lot of what I do now is help people in Hong Kong, I just didn't feel like Hong Kong was, you know, China <laughs> technically, yeah. and I wanted to kind of be in a Mandarin-speaking environment. Um, so I kind of traveled through China, well, the major cities. I went into Hong Kong, Shenzhen. Shanghai and Beijing on my uh, first trip in 07 and I was kind of actually didn't think I would live there any of these places I thought it was just gonna be a short-term trip but basically what happened was I decided that there was so much more to China than I could do in the one month I came that I had to spend more time here and I narrowed down my top two picks were Shanghai and Shenzhen uh, Hong Kong was a little bit expensive for me as an entrepreneur I, I was I was making I was making money to live, but I don't think I could live in Hong Kong with that income at that time. And uh, and I had a business visa with a 30-day stay. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have. You know, I wasn't uh, employed in China. I kind of just flew out here, like a lot of us do. And Shenzhen was right next to Hong Kong. It was Mandarin speaking. It was a much lower cost of living. Um, and I could exit China for my stamp every 30 days for a while. And, uh, and, uh, that was, and the weather's nice. It's warm. Uh, and the internet speeds were comparatively better than even Shanghai at that time. And I think even still now, um, Shanghai's internet, my friends there left the internet on overnight to download big files at their offices. And, you know, so Shenzhen just seemed like kind of like, the best mix of cost, location, and and uh, and Mandarin speaking. It's interesting. Like Hong Kong is like China light, you know. It's not <laughs> yeah. So in two thousand and seven, was Shenzhen the the tech hub already, or, or was that you know like when you first came to China, was Shenzhen already yeah, I mean, showing those signs? It was. It was always like the electronics center, like Huachan Bay yeah, hardware. Um, yeah, I think and then it was also known as that there there was still high tech park with like Lenovo and IBM and and Tencent. So yeah, it was of course it's much bigger now just like many cities in China, but uh but then it was still a growing fast growing city and it was only just turning 30 years old I think when I was here. Yeah. Um which is another cool thing I didn't mention is it's a young city in China so there's not these kind of like family businesses and it's the word guanxi as much because everybody even chinese people are kind of new in shenzhen yeah so 
it was kind of a cool thing. But yeah, it was it was always kind of you know at least when I was here in '07, it was also similar as a high tech, a little bit more in the electronics hardware you know uh, space like it is now. That makes sense. So I mean, I, mean, I think Be- Be- Beijing is still known. I think as a tech, really the software capital of China because uh, yeah. some people are trying to convince me to go to Beijing because I do like I do prefer more like software or marketing internet but uh because the internet is highly highly regulated in China through Beijing so mm-hmm. but yeah I mean it was always known as kind of like the, the electronic center okay. in Shenzhen here that's cool um so obviously in preparation for this interview I had to check out your LinkedIn history and uh yeah that took me some time you know uh I start so you started off as a produce clerk and some of your more history involved your more recent history involves uh four years at Deutsche Bank as a distressed debt trading assistant four and a half years at yeah. New York Bar's store as chief marketing officer I think that was the first company you, you co-founded uh market and sales at Spybull CEO Intelli- SEO Intelligence, Marketing Director at DBR Shenzhen Oi, Shenzhen E-Program, uh, E-Program Guest Lecturer at Jinan University, Co-Founder of <laughs> Shenzhen Team, Shenzhen Coworking, the first co-working space in Shenzhen, Co-Founder and CEO of Social Agent Limited, Facilitator of Startup Weekend, um, and brought the first one to Shenzhen in 2011, to your most uh, recent, or I guess most frequent business uh, as a consultant with Shadstone. Um, can you expand a little bit on your roles at Startup Weekend and, and Chadstone for the people that sure, don't know sure, you? sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So Startup Weekend is an easier, easier story. Um, like you mentioned in my long list of LinkedIn, you know, I love, <laughs> I love, I love putting a lot of keywords get found yeah. on LinkedIn. But yeah, I mean, like legit, I did all those things. Later on, I added the produce just because I thought it was cool to add that. You know, I, I worked in a grocery store. And uh, I think I was almost almost too young to work legally in my state, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know I, I'm glad I got that experience working you know working there. But uh, with the startup weekend, it started because of the co working space. You know I I'm always trying to be an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur, and I think one of the things a lot of us have problems with sometimes is being a little bit lonely and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we work anywhere, which is cool, and we make our own rules. But a lot of times, there's uh, it's kind of quiet in our day to day. So yeah, I mean, I wanted to kind of network with other entrepreneurs, and I got together with a couple of people to start the co-working space, uh, SZ team or Shenzhen team, um, which is was really too early, I think, for co-working. Uh, Should have done it now, but uh, anyway, <laughs> we were early, and of course, we were thinking of ways to get more networking and build a community so startup weekend was uh exploding in the u.s and we contacted them and and uh, hosted the first startup weekend at that co-working space mm-hmm. and uh it was it was really funny man like it's huge now startup weekend and everything but it was only like 20 or 30 people that came we could barely get anybody to come nobody knew what it was <laughs> uh we were like we we're like trying to explain to people what a startup was oh like my God. It was crazy yeah like crazy and uh now it's like you know massive everywhere um but the basic uh basically yeah it was like an ngo i i never got you know compensated for that but it was always a fun f- for me to network and build relationships and uh and and uh help other cities too in china kind of expand so i was doing that part time while i was doing other other startups or ventures um and then 
for Shadstone, that's a company actually, it's kind of confusing on my LinkedIn. I don't know how to exactly say it, but I registered that company in 2007. It's kind of just been my back office, kind of like corporate company that I use for different ventures and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, uh, spin off other companies later from it. And so right now it's focused on, uh, companies set up in, in Hong Kong, corporate structure, uh, banking, uh, and other other kind of like Hong Kong and a little bit of China services on the company setup side. Okay, yeah. Um, going into that, we were just talking about uh, the the banking laws changing in, in Hong Kong uh, and it becoming more difficult for Americans or foreigners in general to register um, their companies. Uh, why is that? Sure. I mean. I was even talking to InvestHK, which is like a, a government like division of to help uh, help companies come to Hong Kong, and they are also just kind of kind of uh, trying to help fix this. But right now, it's uh, it's a whole world, really. There's a lot of things happening, and there's digital nomads is kind of a cool buzzword now of people working and living anywhere that they want right with a laptop and internet connection so people are choosing where they want to set up their company for for either tax reasons or mm-hmm. you know banking reasons uh but i think it's kind of like governments are slow but i think it's getting to the point now where governments are starting to realize that there's a lot of people doing this so you know one of the not the only but one of the reasons hong kong is good is it's a lower tax rate for China, US, most European countries. So I think there's pressure from overseas like US and Europe about um, citizens of their country opening up companies and bank accounts overseas and not paying taxes in their home countries. Uh, that's one reason. The other reason mm-hmm. I would say is, uh, I don't know if you're, you're you know, I'm always afraid to say these words on online, but, you know, money laundering, terrorism, you know, these kind of horrible things like, uh, a lot of those have to get financed through banks. Yeah. So we see all these terrorist acts. It's, it's getting really horrible. It's happening in places around the world. And like recently, usually that's, yeah, like in Belgium, it's all driven by mo- money. You know, of course they can say it's religion, but mm-hmm. it takes money to really, uh, make that happen. And money still goes through bank accounts. So, uh, What's happening is these governments are saying, trying to track the money and they're uh, looking. So if they find the money to fund the Belgium terrorist attack went through like a Hong Kong bank, the the governments are going to sue or fine or threaten or, you know, attack the banks because they're mm-hmm. going to say, why did you let this person or this company, this terrorist organization open a bank account here? And then the banks going to say, they said that they were a trading company for T-shirts huh. when they applied. Yeah, it's not like a terrorist goes to the bank in Hong Kong and says, "I'm a terrorist. Sure, exactly. Can you give me a bank account?" <laughs> They're gonna say, "I'm a trading company, or I'm a startup, or I'm a da da da," and uh, then they get the bank account. And then when they get a bank account, they can use it for terrorists, yeah. or they can use it for money laundering, or they can use it for selling drugs. You know, it's all these horrible things. But and it. Of course, it's, those are evil, bad people that should not be allowed to do that. But the governments are basically making the banks responsible for the acts of their clients. So the banks are saying, hey, if I'm going to get sued for or fined for millions or a billion dollars, like HSBC was fined by like a billion dollars US uh, for helping drug lords in Mexico like f- 
launder money for their which you know banks and say i didn't really know what they were doing. maybe they did maybe they didn't the government says it's not my problem if you knew or not you're supposed to know so we're going to find you anyway pay us a billion dollars and you can google this we can link it in the show notes but that's the banks are like so why am i going to take the risk of letting uh let's just say the podcast listener today is joe why am i going to give joe this guy has no money he's a startup he's going to sell he says he's going to start some kickstarter he's going to do some kind of manufacturing in china but he's got like a hundred dollars in his bank account and maybe he's going to try to english teaching and he's going to start selling drugs or he's going to do bad things to to hustle and make money you know maybe or and then all of a sudden that goes back to the bank because the government's not maybe they'll arrest this person but they know the bank's got the money so the banks are basically mm-hmm. saying like hey these are liabilities these are risks we don't make much money off this guy's bank fees anyway right the bank only makes like small money off the bank so they they're focusing on bigger clients with uh, more established higher net worth kind of uh, statuses that they can verify that, more. That have proven business models and, and that they, yeah. like you said, can verify more. Yeah, so I'll, it's really sad, but uh, it's it's sad because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and, and uh, you know, we're, we're both hustlers and, you know, I know I know we got to just do what we got to do to make it work, but um, these banks are basically saying that, you know, this, it's higher risk and less reward for a smaller business to get in a bank account now. Yeah, but that's eventually got to have a negative effect on on their economy, right? Because I mean, uh, not a, a ton of these small businesses would turn into large businesses, but if they don't have a chance to set up their banking network in Hong Kong, you know, uh, I mean, yeah. there's got long term. I think that's probably going to have some negative effects. Yeah, it's true. I mean, well, there's governments and there's banks. They're different, right? So yeah. government, the government, at least the government, you know, I don't. I, you know, I have some, I'm not the most network. I am pretty network, but, you know, I'm trying to know more government and banks, but they're very traditional, low risk, you know, taking people by definition, mm-hmm. right? They're not like entrepreneurs mm-hmm. like us. So, uh, they're slower to realize that or they're less, they're saying, okay, fine, but I can't lose, you know, I'm not going to like take that big of a risk and hopefully it'll change. But I don't, of course, I mostly work with Hong Kong, but I think this is happening everywhere in the world, you know, mm-hmm. and also U.S. citizens, you know, are uh are getting you know in trouble for not reporting their bank accounts that they have overseas and and banks might get in trouble for not reporting americans and there's just basically becoming harder and harder to do international business which is sad and it's kind of like what i'm passionate i think you two are we're passionate about yeah but it's course, uh man. it's getting hard it's getting harder because uh you know uh there's these bad people that are t- you know bad horrible evil people that are you know, doing either terror, you know, just bad things or they're, you know, skipping their taxes and uh, it's making it harder for people just to do business overseas or outside our own country. That's ironic because as we're becoming, as, as globalization is becoming more and more co- common and we're connecting more and easily to the world. They're also simultaneously trying to make it harder for you to to do international business. Well, yeah, there's lots of well, there's I mean, this is I love this stuff. I mean, but it's uh, mm. it's fascinating. But there's internet and technology and and hardware. But then there's governments and banks. Yeah. Governments and banks aren't 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 the aren't really the, in the same alignment as technology and, yeah. uh, and innovation always. So They can't do anything. They can't stop it, though. You can't stop the internet. It's just, it's too powerful. It's too powerful. Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm excited about. And there's, of course, there's Bitcoin and, and it's kind of the government stuff. How, you know, everybody thinks I'm crazy, but 
I think government's going to have to change long term. I mean, that's that's because you know I, Uber's I, you know Uber's taking you know knocking out taxis, Airbnb's knocking out hotels, yeah. you know Bitcoin's knocking out banks, yeah. and government. I government, but government makes the rules, right? They're like. I don't. Know, I don't want to get into a conspiracy theory here, but uh, you know, they're <laughs> that's for another podcast episode. They're yeah, they're 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 scared too. You know, they they basically the t- governments are basically make money from taxes, right? Yeah. So governments are like, wait a minute, I'm not getting as much tax income. Where's that money going? I got to get it back. And now they're trying to stop this kind of global entrepreneurship, uh, digital nomad, like work anywhere kind of movement. So how? How do you? I guess this is your business. So how how do you assist in this process? Like how? What are you trying to do right now to to ensure that somebody can register their their company? Sure, sure. I know it's it's very hard and sad for me at the same time because um I I want to try my best to help anybody that that can do it. But I I get I you know I rank in Google. I love I love you know internet marketing. So I, I've been getting tons of comments and requests, and I'm being just a little bit pre-selective and uh, I have to just because I don't want to lead somebody on and tell them you know uh, so I, I try to basically do our own assessment and actually what we're working on now is a online uh, f- assessment that they can fill out mm-hmm. uh, and it will give them an answer based on how they fill out the answers if we think they can do it or not Okay. It's uh, it's something we're building right now, actually. But again, like in my research, I was I was on one of your websites, Global from Asia, and I saw one of the services you provided was mainland company registration. Do you still do that? Yeah, sure. I mean, if somebody really wants to go that route, it's a, it's it's a, it's a it's a big it's a big step. But yeah, I I, I do help a few select people with that. What do you, in your opinion, what are the benefits of setting up your banking in Hong Kong rather than just the mainland? Um, so the 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 really few easy ones are multi currency banking mm-hmm. uh, in Hong Kong, whereas in China, everything's got to be an RMB and it's very highly controlled currency. And uh, so if you send money, if somebody sends you like ten thousand dollars US to your Chinese business account, you're going to have to convert that to RMB to receive it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, there's also taxes, uh, upfront for receiving it. And, uh, you have to have an invoice of what it's for and get it approved and chopped. And whereas if you get paid to Hong Kong, $10,000, it basically goes into your bank account immediately and, uh, you can keep it in dollars and send out dollars. Um, and has English banking. And uh, most of the laws are in English, and the, you know you can talk to most people in Ch- in Hong Kong in English for your you know accounting and for your uh, different business deals, everything. Whereas in mainland China, everything's still in Chinese, and the banking's all mostly in Chinese. I think there might be some that are kind of in English, but uh, the online banking is nowhere near as as good as most of the Hong Kong online banks. Um, so that that is that answered? I mean, there's probably more. I definitely, I definitely. I mean, I just wanted to do sort of the introduction to it. Like, I can I can speak to that because like I, even just last week, um, I received money in our HSBC account that was just you know within 12 hours, so I had access to the funds, and then exactly. I, had, I had to transfer money to my to my Chinese account. I literally yep. had to go to the bank, 
two times in the space of two days physically mm-hmm. to go <laughs> sign documents come back the next day approve then transfer the money like you just said transfer the money from usd into rnb and mm-hmm. of course they took fees from that it was just like mm-hmm. well, it's just night and day you know it's really just exactly <laughs> it's crazy exactly exactly so uh, let's let's take a step a couple of steps back what uh, what are some things or one thing you wish you spent less time on when you first started out in china i guess just like what you were talking about time in banks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i i uh i was so you know, I guess, you know, of course, a little bit nervous. I, I didn't, I really just came out here. I didn't know anybody. I was staying in hotels and I hired somebody, a girl I met at the trade show when I first came and, uh, she's my assistant. And, uh, but I was just afraid I would go to like, go to jail or I would, you know, get deported. I, I, I was just so nervous about, uh, hiring people illegally and doing business in a personal or outside of China bank account. I just thought I had to have everything set up before I could do anything and it wasted, uh, I was of course still doing business. I had a U.S. company and I set up a Hong Kong company, but I thought to actually hire, well, maybe actually, honestly, you should have a company to hire people, but I think I was just a little bit overly paranoid about having everything properly set up and mm-hmm. all that corporate, stuff it just kind of delayed me and burnt a decent amount of my money at the beginning which maybe was the right thing to do but maybe i could have waited a little bit and then what's some something you wish you did when starting out i guess honestly is learning chinese more uh i was one of these ignorant americans that kind of figured everybody should speak english or <laughs> I was bad at language, bad at languages, or I never really liked learning any language. I knew a little bit of Spanish, kinda, and uh, you know, I, I was always focusing on math and science in school, and so I was like, and I wasn't sure how long I would be in China. I would never think I was on a on this interview with you today in 2016. You know, like that was eight years ago. It was crazy. I I, yeah. I would have. So I, I guess I wish I I actually it's funny. I did have that first assistant teach me Chinese an hour a day after lunch as part of her contract but it was funny like a month in i was like okay okay let's we're too busy with you know doing the sourcing and doing the other stuff Let, let's let's just take a break from chinese and because i never knew how long i would stay i was just talking to a guy a few days ago and he's the same like i used to be he's like i'm not sure how long i'll be here i'm not gonna learn chinese but you know uh i've gotten by and i, I my chinese is okay now but i wish i really just hit the books harder and right from the beginning yeah I'm, I'm in that same zone but i i was definitely determined to learn even before i came to china I, I took some introductory mandarin courses but i found that i've gone back and forth like i was studying a lot when i first arrived and then I stopped and then started and stopped and it's just like partly obviously you know having a, a startup was just like you know i couldn't really fit exactly schedule exactly but i'm definitely making a more concerted concerted effort this year to to study mandarin more exactly mm-hmm. yep you, same 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 what were some of your earliest failures or difficulties when you first started doing business in china and how did you overcome them sure sure i mean i, I i'm always less i'm never so shy to i think people learn the most from mistakes so um my biggest bigger one was i think my biggest customer was doing sourcing uh I remember I 
basically screwed up the quality control check. Uh, honestly, uh, well, it was a little bit. It was like a modified product of a of a table, a beer pong table, and uh, you would basically we the client asked to put a sticker on top. It was usually just a painting board for painting walls. Was the client like a frat house? <laughs> oh no, no, they're like a des creative design studio that was selling these to stores in the U.S. And right. of course, they were selling to frat houses, but uh, they were they were they were college grads. Uh, this beer pong was big. I don't know if it still is, but it was growing it's, fast. And uh, it still is. It still is. So yeah, basically, they didn't really know how to design a product, manufacture a product. I didn't really know. I mean, I had bought from, but this was like a modified product, and you know. Uh, basically what happened was the sticker wasn't built for high heat mm -hmm. and it would melt the glue underneath and, uh, and not stick that back down in high heat. So this was a, a summertime, uh, delivery and, uh, it got into stores and then, uh, in cars and then in cars, it would melt the glue a little bit and then, uh, it would bubble up and not stick back. So you would have this tabletop that had bubbles that would kind of like, not stick back down on the table. Oh, <laughs> you <yeah. know? laughs> well. So you could imagine. And uh, I remember, because of course the time zone differences. So I remember coming back from dinner. This is before I had a smartphone, like 08. And uh, I refreshed my Outlook email that's connecting to server and downloading messages. I remember, and I was drinking maybe a beer or something. And and uh, it was like 8.30 or 9 p.m. our time. In China, it was like 9 a.m. there in, in the U.S. East Coast. And it, it was, we have a big bleeping, bleeping problem and, uh, all from my biggest client. And I'm like, should I open this now? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, it was full of pictures and, uh, threats and, uh, all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh, that was a little bit rough. What did you do? Um, I, I guess the first thing is I, I asked a few, you know, uh, I asked some other people in China doing this and collected different feedback. And uh, I mean, of course, I replied to them right away and told them we would look into this right away and talk to the factory. And I was trying to be political or, you know, trying to, you know, because, you know, being uh, in the middle, trying to balance both sides and, uh, um, collect as much information went to the factory and the factory didn't seem to really feel so concerned uh or or worried as uh, factories normally do yeah <laughs> so he's just like you didn't tell me it needed to do that so it's not my problem and uh you know i'm showing them pictures of the products and uh and uh, I was staying in a hotel because the factory wasn't right next door. You know, a lot of times Americans or foreigners, you know, I think you could deal with this. A lot of people think China's factories are like down the street from your house. So I was in a hotel for a couple of days just trying my best to keep working with the factory and couldn't get anything out of them. And uh, basically um, waited it out, let him cool off uh, and gave him a credit on the next order. Uh, mm. And uh, luckily it didn't get a recall in the stores. What happened was I was watching the weather every day and in the U S <laughs> and the, the temperature like max high, like uh, I guess luckily it's like that fight club when they're talking about the recall on the cars and they're calculating the, do we do a recall or not? Yeah. So yeah. I, I think it didn't make, a recall at stores because we're already distributed all throughout the stores in the U.S. So 
Um, luckily, I don't think it backlashed as bad as we thought. I think it was a few bad eggs in the lot that, uh, you know, it's like it was really, really hot. We're talking like August heat in, in Northeast America. So mm-hmm. it's like where the baby would die if you left him in the car or the dog would die if you left him in the car. You know, it was like really hot. So I, I, I think we got a little bit lucky and it cooled off. Um, and I kind of kept the client happy with a credit for the next order and we fixed it. But, uh, that was really a scary two or three days, man. I was like, uh, pretty scared. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if the factory is not willing to, to do anything in those situations, the only thing you could do is provide some sort of concession in the next order, you know, maybe take less of a pay cut like take a pay cut or something like that you know there's not exactly. really much you can do because they're not gonna obviously you're not gonna ship all those products back like it's just there's nothing you can do really exactly they know that of course yeah. I'm, I'm sure they have some kind of they have some kind of chinese manufacturer mastermind qq group or something that they're yeah. talking in like <laughs> I can just imagine that, right? They're just like, you, hey, this, this, <laughs> this guy's trying to get money out of me, and they're all probably like laughing in a QQ group the or QQ something. Group. Like, what are, what are they going to do? Shift them over with another container? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, what was I going to say? That's, that's what you pointed out was so important. So important to do QC before you ship out. And just, well, like, we did. Of... We did, but we didn't do it. I mean, we did have somebody check. I mean, one of my partners at the time, a team members, and he, we didn't, you know, that's the tricky part. You know, it's QC, but then again, how are you going to QC putting it in, in a backseat of a trunk in, in, in summer heat? You know, that, that is one thing. Like, it's not like we didn't QC it. We did have somebody check it, but I think, you know, we should have, you know, Somebody, somebody in the supply chain has to think of all the specs. Yeah, and actually, the cl- the client accepted the sample. That's that's what we I sent was them gonna, a sample. That's what I was gonna say is like when when we do when we do do QC, most of the time we outsource it, but when we do do QC, I make sure that I'm not the one coming up with the checklist. The the, the client is the one comes up, who comes up with the checklist. So if if there is anything that happens after that, it's like well, you didn't put that in exactly. the checklist you know yeah i mean honestly like we were trying to be like kind of like full service like don't yep. worry like um we got you <laughs> yeah all right going off of that question you just i guess you kind of touched on this a, a lot uh, a little bit but when you first got to china i guess your plan was to source uh, source products and you mentioned if when i was reading in your linkedin and stuff uh, you had an e-commerce business um yep yep uh, could you have imagined you'd be doing what you're doing right now at that time it's always hard to predict the future i mean honestly like i'm a yeah. i'm a i'm a i'm a internet marketer like when i first started my online business uh my friend or my my business partners i've in a couple of different ventures saw saw the strength in me as like a, as a technology marketer mm-hmm. so uh it was even before the e-commerce i was helping my friend with a mobile app at deutsche bank on part-time together and he basically i my skill is always uh online marketing and a little bit of light tech you know uh but i just saw a problem with buying from china and as a marketer but it was like contacting my e-commerce store wanting to buy direct from china and uh um but it wasn't really my strength like this qc checklist and and mm-hmm. and, and and bargaining with manufacturers and and uh my strength was more on driving online sales and leads to my store or to my website you know like uh 
so really it was never i mean my idea was to build a team that could do it or but i i i really couldn't stand dealing with factories after a certain point um and i went like you you know we don't got through my go through my whole linkedin but I went back to my passion, which is internet marketing, and uh, I found an internet marketing company here uh, that was pretty awesome, and got a, became a partner there. And long, there's long stories, but I think even now, like I, a lot of people say, you know, I talked to somebody in a coffee shop in Hong Kong, and he's like, "How do you do company setup in Hong Kong?" And I'm like, "I didn't even expect to do that. I just, I'm a marketer, and I found a problem, and I'm serving it." Yeah, and um. And I'm driving in like customers and leads to service that need. Um, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to get better in my my operation side and my back end side. You know, like we've talked offline and other calls. You know, I'm really working hard on uh, standard operating procedures and and operations to 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 keep balance of the sales side and the operations side. Super important in China, and I I definitely want to pick your brain on on SOPs and things like that um, moving forward. And maybe I think that's one of the questions in this in this episode. Um, what is your proudest entrepreneurial moment to date? Yeah, that's a really tough one. I mean, I guess there's t- different types of proud. Um, there was one I, I in social agent I I uh, a few different milestones. It, it wasn't the biggest home run that there is in startups, but uh, it was a you know foreign startup in China, tech startup, and basically uh, got into one of the biggest pitch days in China as a foreigner and uh, pitched to like eight or hundred Chinese uh, audience. What is it and, China uh, Accelerator? Oh, China Accelerator was an incubator. Um, yeah, that was a good milestone to get into the program. Uh, this was 36KR. It's basically like a tech crunch of China. Like they're having their tech crunch kind of style uh, conference and they had like eight startups pitching in front of uh, the audience. So that was after China Accelerator. Um, and I was pitching in front of the whole group and uh, they let me do it in English. I should. I wish I could do it in Chinese. And uh, <laughs> I remember uh, kind of being a little bit of a rebel on stage. Uh, I had a T-shirt that had my QR code as, a t- as the whole T-shirt, and I told everybody to s- scan my QR code. And then uh, on on the on the back, it's like uh, in Chinese, it said like uh, you know like what matters here is relationships, and uh, re- you know I need relationships in China, something like this in English. And they were all laughing. And then I told the judges that I don't need their help and I don't need their mo- <laughs> and I said I don't need their money and then I pointed to the crowd and I said I need your help and uh, we need you to help social agent and our clients to succeed in China wow and it was like cool I, and the judges were kind of like who's this crazy foreigner and because I was kind of <laughs> getting sick of talking to investors and I just wanted to execute and build my business I didn't want to keep yeah. bargaining with investors I wanted to do my business so um, it was kind of a cool day and uh Two questions um, off of that. Yeah, go ahead. Is there video evidence of the situation? Because I'd love to see that. And then the second one was, what was the reaction from 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 everybody? Yeah, I mean, it got like an uproar with the uh, the audience. Uh, there's video. I don't know about video. There's pictures. They, I think they were recording it. I, I can send. You can link in the show notes the, the article. But it was just pictures. I'm not sure if they recorded. This is 2013. Um, 
but the reaction was pretty cool. Like the judges just obviously were just straight faced, just like the factory owner, uh, when I talked to them and, uh, cause I kind of become like a rebel, not really a rebel, but you know, I'm like, I've ever, never really liked authority even mm-hmm. when I was in the U S and, uh, you know, I think uh, in China, people are too focused on getting investors money and validation from investors. So, and everybody there was like trying to get the judges attention. And I was just really there to get the audience's attention. So, uh, it was pretty cool. <laughs> that is pretty cool. Uh, um, what have you learned about selecting and hiring Chinese employees? Sure, sure. I think basically there's lots of Chinese people, of course, in China. Um, I think the best ones are the ones that want to work with Western companies. Uh, of course, they'll speak English already. Um, actually, it's funny, like, you know, on a LinkedIn profile, you see me as a guest lecturer at Jinan University. I did it almost as a volunteer. I think they paid me like a thousand RMB for two hours, three hours. It wasn't about the money. It was like, uh, I did it, uh, to get into the network of the students mm-hmm. to get them to work, work for me. Uh, they were like a e-business program. Uh, so I really love, uh, tapping into students, uh, for, for talent. Um, they're like some of the best best people to work because uh the younger chinese are awesome they're like different every generation of chinese is very very different this culture is rarely i guess let's call it fascinating but there's just so much to, to each generation is very different and the younger mm-hmm. generation is very uh intelligent and they're usually good at english um but you got to get them to buy into you as you're obviously going to be a foreigner uh you got to get them to buy into your culture um your philosophy yeah, but it's also like I've had these cases where I've uh, also uh, offended some of them because I sometimes complain about the bank, like he, you know, we, we were talking about, and uh, you know, I, I they sometimes some sometimes the staff take it like you're talking bad about, you know, about, you gotta be a little bit careful. China. Yeah, you yeah. know what I'm talking about, yeah, so. Yeah. You know, I complain about U.S. banks. If there's a problem with the U.S. bank, I'll complain about a U.S. bank. If there's a problem with a Hong Kong bank, I'll, I'll complain about. I'll, you know, I'm, it's not like I'm hating on China, but of course we all have those bad China days. Yeah. But I think really the trick is to uh, the trick is to not do that in front of your staff, um, yeah. unless you really know them well. Uh, but they usually don't respect that, um, and uh, so and then also I used to want to work on the same same level as my staff you know like kind of a little bit more western yeah style and i was like i don't want to have this hierarchy where they're like below me and i'm above them but actually i think if there's listeners that are chinese here i think they would agree you kind of got to be above them and show them that you're like the boss and the leader and you have a vision and uh you know work a little bit separately from them and uh I don't know if that's true maybe in the western too you know it's not like i was a, i really wasn't like a manager level at the, Why? In the u.s either so why? Yeah. Why do you have to do that? Because I'm I'm that like I I'm in that zone where I'm trying to balance that myself. Why do you have to um, set work a little bit separately from them? Um. Uh, of course, I don't actually like it, but uh, I think it's uh, I think it's uh, it makes less emotional decisions in your hiring and management. Um, so I've worked both ways. I worked in the same room, like 
I, you know, I hustled with like six staff in like a two bedroom apartment when I first started uh, sourcing and uh, it's just like you're too close to them and uh, you they get in. Again, man, I mean, maybe I'm not even right even today, but they kind of under they get to know you too closely and uh, you're like, um, maybe it's also because I'm like a new dad too, but even with a dad, you you know, like or as a parent, you have to kind of uh, show them that you, sometimes they can't get so close to you that they'll know how you think and how you act. Mm-hmm. Um it's just tricky. That's to be a little I, bit of, of mystery so that you can yeah, still have an authority or, or, or I think so. I mean, and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's of course, it's, everybody has their different style, but mm-hmm. I would generally recommend that you have that separation. Uh, um, it's just going to make your life a little bit easier. And, but I've, I've even, I study Western management too, even though I'm in China or Asia, but even in, even in the West, people say to keep that separation just because uh, there's going to be tough times where you're going to have to like, give them warnings you're gonna have to maybe fire them or lay them off you know and you have your friends and then you have your your staff i think it's a little bit different because it gets tricky if they're really your your friend or your you know family um unless you're really willing to just uh lose that relationship i i 100 percent agree because yeah definitely it comes down to those situations where you have to enforce a rule or you know give somebody a warning and then if you have that personal relationship it's it's that just that much harder um i think that if you if you're able to separate those feelings then that's possible but then they might not be able to separate those feelings right they might feel like well he's my he's my friend so why is he you know and it's it's also not even between you and that team member but it's between that team member and the other team members yeah and those other team members and you yeah. So they see that relationship. I've had this. They see that relationship you have with one of, the, and it's like kind of favorites, and uh, and like other other kind of awkward things that can come out of it. So uh, that's just my my kind of advice. I mean, it's it's a it's something that's very complex. Management, manage, people management is a very complex thing any, anywhere in the world. I, I remember when I was in college, they were like, you know, human resources is like maybe one of the most important <laughs> departments in a company. Just is like Ex- managing people is, is you know, exactly. it's not an exact science. Um, how does one scale a business with Chinese stuff? Sure. I mean, I think actually you're mentioning SOPs. That's probably applicable anywhere in the world too, but especially in China um, and I, I say these things just out of, out of love but not 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 hate but Chinese are like to have clear instructions on what they need to do mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's the way their education is structured I you know so actually I've had some of my staff tell me that they get stressed out more when I'm not clear about what they need to do mm-hmm. um, but I like to kind of like I used to like to give them flexibility or creativity in their work, but actually... Which is typical of Western culture. Yeah, exactly. I thought they would like that, but honestly, I've been told they don't like that, and they like to know exactly what they need to do. So, you know, it obviously there's factories in China. Most listeners aren't probably running a factory, but a factory has very specific tasks, and they take this widget and put this, you know... PCB board into this plastic housing or whatever 
you kind of kind of try to replicate that in your office as well a little bit and uh and structure your company and have managers and probably have a chinese hr person like we're probably not the right hr people even though we should be aware of managing chinese staff probably have a chinese partner or at the least have a chinese like hr manager or general manager that will actually deal with all this hr stuff um but I think that's really the way to scale in China is, is uh, and in KPI or having ways to measure their work, um, which I think is not just China, it's anywhere, but especially in China, if if they know they're being measured and they have specific tasks, I've, I've seen it both ways in my own company, various companies, um, they, they, they like structure. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like you said, it's, it's, it's the education style, it's the culture. Um, it's it's super important to give people yeah. exactly like uh, like exactly okay, what they okay. should be doing. Like I do every morning. Like I have a team meeting, a short team meeting, and I just basically list out the tasks that everybody is going to do individually. I've even taken it as far as saying you should only spend thirty five minutes on this, <laughs> one hour on that. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just just because I found sometimes a task that I felt wouldn't take this long to do i found that somebody was doing it for three hours and i'm like wait you've got so much other stuff to do you shouldn't be yep, you yep. know um yeah so but i, I what i really want to do is as you we've talked about before is the sops i want to have that written and and printed out and just something that i can hand new staff members and and current staff members to just follow you know um yep exactly all right, so move, I guess we're moving a little bit more into the personal side. But uh, people that know you or followed your journey probably know about your podcast history. Uh, you currently host the Global From Asia podcast, and, and you have the blog by the same name, and the China Business Cast, and previously the Forbes China Show. How beneficial has podcasting been to your success? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I love I love podcasts. I mean, I've I've, list, I've been a listener for years before I have my own, and... You know, I think today hopefully will help a lot of people too that are listening today. Um, it's 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 definitely more of a Western culture thing. I don't know if you would agree, but it's um, it's uh, it's definitely uh, people that listen to podcasts are people that want to learn and people that want to kind of improve their life or their business. So I always seem to think that people that email me or message me or tell me they listen to my podcast usually are much more. How do I, I guess I'll just say straight up educated <laughs> then the, I, I think you would probably, I don't know. I don't want to put you on a spot, but uh, <laughs> versus somebody that, that Google searches and finds like my blog and price skims to the bottom hits contact and sends me an email that they need help with their bank account. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much different than somebody that listens to my podcasts and listens to shows talking about bank accounts or whatever and uh, emails me. I can really tell a lot of differences. So, but yeah, podcast is a little bit tricky. I mean, you have this show. Um, it's tricky because it's going out there. You don't really know who is listening. You kind of get a basic idea how many people are downloading the show. Mm. Uh, I have people that email me that have been listening for over a year or two, and I never knew that they were, you know, of course, it's the same with a blog a little bit. But with the blog, you can kind of get a little bit more idea, I think, on the data of the people. But uh but yeah, I mean, it's, it's awesome. I mean, I've met some listeners that have said they've, uh, they've implemented some of the advice and, uh, like with Hong Kong company set up and they've met me for coffee or whatever. And they were just saying how they were searching for this. They couldn't find other information and it saved them or saved them from doing the wrong thing. And of course, some, 
you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely not a pressure, high pressure salesperson, but of course, some of them become clients in a new agency, which I set up because of a podcast, uh, based on, I think it's really great to find the, the problem of the market and to find, you know, an, an audience or a group of people that are interested in the same topic and, and, uh, and get a lot of information, um, about the industry so that you can uh, can find a, a way to help help them um, if that answers your question I mean definitely um, I agree one of the first things you you, you just mentioned is that uh, it's definitely more of a Western thing like I, I I have some of my Chinese friends that listen to our podcast but then it, partly because it's our podcast is in English you know it's difficult for them to follow a lot of the technical language and and, and things like yeah. that but just in general I don't think podcasting is a it's culturally yeah. relevant here it's 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 language it's of course language one but two is i don't think i think it's just they they like video well maybe in the west too is more video a little bit but i think there's definitely more of an audio listening culture in the western world and radio or than uh than in the, the chinese market in china like i th- I can't guess what people are, have headphones on i think they're listening to music i, I don't think they're listening to podcasts so uh Mm, which is kind of sad because there's so much amazing free knowledge that you and I are putting out there, you know, totally for free with, we don't even know their email address or anything, right? Like they can totally benefit, uh, uh, from, from our, from our content, but, uh, it's definitely more of a Western thing. I have a confession to make. Uh, I was listening to the Global From Asia podcast when I was still in Toronto. You know, back, oh, back wow. in the day. So I'm one of those people that you mentioned. Like I, I've been listening oh, to your see, I didn't know for, <laughs> for a awesome. couple of years. You know, um, and then also I was listening to the China Business Cast before when JP was was the host. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I actually emailed him. I'm sure he doesn't remember, but I emailed him like six months before I moved to China. And I told awesome. him, I said, "Hey, man, I'm I'm from Toronto. I know you're from Toronto because you mentioned it in the yeah, podcast. Yeah. And I'm moving to China. I'm going to start a business. And it's just like for me, it's kind of mind blowing that I was listening to your podcast. You took over the China Business Cast. I used to yep. like, talk to JP a little bit, and then now I'm interviewing you. It's just like, it's awesome, <laughs> man. It's just that's what it's about, right? It's, it's crazy. It's, uh, yeah, it's about man. It's, it's about it's." Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're a learner and, uh, you're, you're a networker and, and it's great, man. And, uh, I hope more people are like you and, and I, and we're, you know, I, I've, I, uh, I've been trying to dig into my past a little bit. It's kind of weird. I, I, I just privately journal for, I, for my own, my own help. But, uh, I think, uh, a lot of it is, I used to think I was done learning after school. I think there was like this period of time when I was still in school mm-hmm. and I was like, I can't wait to grad. I kind of didn't like school because uh, I was studying stuff. I didn't want to like study just because I, ha- I had to get, I had to. Uh, and I, I was just, I don't know how long I had in my mind. It's definitely not what I did, but I was like, okay, I'll graduate and I don't have to learn anything anymore and I'll just get a job. And uh, of course, that's not what I do. And it's there was different phases in my childhood, but there was definitely phases where I was like thinking that. And uh, I think a lot of people are like that. They just stop learning. They're like, "Oh, I'm done with school. I don't need to learn anymore." And uh, that's totally not not. Well, I guess it's true if you just want to work in a in a you know follow one SOP every yeah. day. I guess if you're going to uh, work in a factory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so speaking about your past, you've been blogging since 2007. You know, I was, I was, yeah. I was reading some of your early posts. Some of them were oh, really no. short. Uh, it was, it was fun, man. I enjoyed it. Uh, 
What's the name of your blog and what was the initial motivation yeah. for you to blog? Your, was it just a blog journey to China or? Yeah, there's a, yeah, I mean, that was another reason I didn't like corporate jobs. I mean, I was a Deutsche Bank, right? And not, there was so much compliance about everything. And I was just, uh, not just me, but most of my, my colleagues, my coworkers were afraid to blog or do social media because we were afraid that the company would find out. So I, I don't want to say I wanted to blog earlier. I guess I was blogging on my business site, like my, my e-commerce store before, but, uh, not as like an individual. And when I finally put in my nose to quit, I was having beers with my coworkers and friends at New York City and, uh, we're at a bar, like an Irish pub or something. And, and they were just laughing and, uh, they were like so curious and envious and, you know, just wanting to know what's going to happen after I quit, quit the job. And, uh, the name of the blog's changed, but originally it was Happiness in Pursuit. I <laughs> think I even dropped the domain. I didn't bother, but it was when the Pursuit of Happiness came out with Will Smith. Yeah. And everybody was saying I was doing the opposite of Will Smith in the movie because in the movie he was a, he was an entrepreneur. I would call him an entrepreneur. He was selling those uh, x-ray machines or the medical. I don't know if you remember that in the movie. Yeah. He was door to door salesman and he was like dreaming of working on Wall Street and I was saying, I'm dreaming to be an entrepreneur or a door-to-door salesman. <laughs> yeah. And everybody's like, you're like the opposite. So I bought a domain of Pursuit of Happiness. Um, and I registered it and I put this site on. And uh, I've had a few domain changes. But uh, now it's just mikesblog.com. Uh, I guess a domain domainer or somebody had that domain and emailed me to, to buy it. And it gave me a, a really good price. I mean... I think, yeah, I was I was uh, gonna say like Mike's blog must have been like obviously that was registered before like <laughs> yeah yeah he emailed me it. I don't know I yeah. don't know if he's reading my blog or yeah just out of the blue he's just like hey man uh, this I think this domain is better for you uh, uh, I just he said three hundred dollars U S what and, <laughs> yeah That's and crazy. he's like and. Uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And then I, uh, he transferred me the domain before I even paid him. I seriously was like, he pushed me the domain on GoDaddy. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course I wasn't gonna, but I was like, this domain's already in my account. But yeah, I sent him money after. Like this, it was all within like a few hours, but he was just like, I don't know. Yeah. And that was just a few years ago. Um, but, uh, it's kind of morphed. The, the blog's kind of morphed a few times. And then it is like, it was like a, a few different domains and it's not really had a, focus purpose like global from asia or e-commerce sites and mm-hmm. now i'm not as active as i used to be i used to blog like every day on there about my like yeah like you said like partying or my journey or just pictures and and uh um i should update it more but now it's just kind of a mix of whatever i feel like putting there like really it's not so focused it's more like I think there are people that read it, but I, it's like I write it just because I just want it to be like my creative space where I can just experiment and put mm-hmm. stuff out that I, just happening, like baby pictures or productivity or life or events or something. Yeah, it was interesting because I've just recently started to get in contact with you. So it's like I was looking at the older ones of you like going out. I was like, oh, it's just like you don't, of course, now you're a family man. So I didn't see that side of you right so that was that was the part of the interesting things that i liked about your blog and it seemed like you definitely were uh, creative and like experimenting with different things on the blog do you see it becoming one of those like the tim ferris for work week blog 
<laughs> I don't, I don't, it's not my goal with it anymore. I, I kind of like to just, we've talked about this on other calls, but I'm just putting everything at like a business blog that has more clear focus. Uh, you know, like this is just like an experiment and it's probably like a person, I don't think I'll ever sell the, the site. I mean, I don't think anybody would really want to buy it or maybe the domain name, but it's, it's just going to be like, it can be if I move wherever in the world or whatever happens, it's just going to be like people can just check out what I'm up to. Mm-hmm. What was your, I guess, oh, going into the closing questions now, but what was your mindset starting out versus now? Uh, you seem you seem quite driven and motivated. I'm assuming initially it was hunger, you know, to make money, achieve your goals, come to China. But now that that's your reality, what's driving you? Yeah, sure. I mean... I think, uh, kind of like I hinted in the beginning, I wasn't sure how long I would be in China and I, I thought it would just be like, uh, I think like a lot of us, we don't know how long we're going to be here or what's going to happen. And, um, but basically originally I was motivated by travel and adventure, like my blog adventures. Like I think it was, it's had different names, but like adventures in China was maybe one name or something like that. I think, um, and then it was more about the adventure and the learning process and of course making money and doing my own business but it was more like the the experience and now i think i've kind of of course there's so much more to experience in life and business but for now like you said like i kind of have done that and i've kind of reached the i i'm really like at i'm kind of at a good fulfillment state of my life like mm-hmm. what i'm doing and um so yeah i mean i've i've been really studying like just to be more appreciative of what I have and not always trying to, to get more. And, and, uh, and, uh, there's a lot of different, yeah, like Tim Ferriss, like stoicism. He's, he's always preaching, like, you know, like appreciating what you have. And, um, so my kind of lost track of the question exactly, but I guess what drives me now is of course having kids and, uh, and, uh, making sure they have the, good environment to, to learn and, and to be good people and uh, um, I just like to have I like to have more control of my life like I like learning more than ever I think I've studying and, and reading and improving I, I just enjoy it so much All right, so you're mentioning your family you're married you've got children how are you balancing your work grind and, and family life as an entrepreneur because I, I mean, I know a lot of people know you, and they know that you work a lot. So, how does that, how does that work with the family? Sure. Uh, well, we just recently moved our apartment a couple of weeks ago. Literally, <laughs> it was actually very sudden, and there's always some story in China about it. It was uh, landlord changes, but uh, I got a little very small little office now in my house because uh, my family keeps getting bigger. I got two kids. I got the Chinese family, like grandpa, aunts, and my wife, and uh, so it's a full house, but I still want to work near my family and spend time with my family as much as I can. Um, so I try to schedule at least a couple of days a week to work at home mm-hmm. uh, as much as I can. I've been really reducing my travel, uh, trying to do projects and and uh, and, and uh, just generally anything Um from remote or from home uh and then i schedule my days uh or a morning is my if most productive work time like for me i think some people are better at night i'm definitely a morning worker so i just basically make my family 
accept my schedule. It was a little bit of a getting to know you or learning period, but uh, my kids are still too young. But when they're older, uh, I have to train them or SOP them that my morning time, <laughs> my morning time is my most effective, important work time where I write or I, I, uh, I do different things. So, um, like we're recording this podcast in the afternoon. I, I always schedule calls and meetings in the afternoon or evening. Um, and then so afternoon and evening is kind of a mix of management and, and, uh, email and family time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely try to have, dinner with my family as, as much as I can, uh, and evenings with them. And I haven't gotten to that point, but I might even set certain days, but I think the best way is to balance work and life and family is to actually just be very public about it. Or maybe you don't have to blog it maybe, but I might even start putting my, my normal routine on my blog and link to it when people email me for meetings or something. But, uh, but at least within your family and your close friends, just let them know your schedule. Like my friends and my family mostly know that, yeah, Mike works in the morning. I'm not going to like expect him to go to a meeting or a call or, or something in the morning. And I know the afternoon. And so it takes a little bit of time, but it's kind of like back to the SOPs or anything is, uh, just trying to man just have a very strict schedule or at least a structure yeah that's so true that's such a simple solution and you kind of have to train the people around you to understand yeah exactly what your schedule is and i mean once people know they're obviously going to be more accommodating to to yeah to it, life. it's more effective too because they're like they know and then they plan and then you get to actually focus that time doing that rather than trying to reply to email on your phone at the same time you're like trying to be with your your family so you just have more focused uh time like my i'm thinking about my dad here and like i I remember with my dad he kind of had the family trained where when he got back from work at like 5 30 no one came to him and asked him for money or complained about something that was missing or anything like that he was like from about 5 30 to after dinner which is let's say 8 30 he just wanted to kind of come home shower relax watch a little bit of tv have dinner just yeah. talk about social stuff and then let's say 8 9 when we sit down again to watch tv he would be like okay now what you know what, so you want to go to the movies you need 20 dollars, whatever like you just then then he would be fine but if you tried to approach him as soon as he walked through the door he'd be like get out of my face like <laughs> it's just like i don't want to i don't want to deal with that but then eventually everybody knew that and he just he was just vocal about it yeah yeah exactly it's um it's a little bit weird because like some people don't like it. They think I'm a little bit like a like. Sometimes my wife calls me a robot or something. But uh, <laughs> she kind of. I think they buy into it when they see that there there is benefit time. Because I used to be the guy that was like always half not. I was always working, but there was those times I was like half working and half not working, and I was really doing neither. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's just more more pure, a hundred percent focus, doing one thing, and and uh, I, yeah, I mean. Yeah, like basically, it's awesome. It's just the best way. And I, I, I tell everybody. I tell my family. I tell my the people I work with, clients, everybody. It's, it's, it's you know, try to make it clear. And and then of course, hopefully their schedules can fit that, or maybe I have to adjust a little bit. But I get upset if I break that rule. I I feel really upset if I if I break that rule, like sometimes I get forced into like a, a morning call and it just messes up my day because uh, 
it's anyways that's a good segue into into my next point like I've, I've been talking to my people my sources and uh, they've all told me that you're a bit of a productivity freak so you use tools such as pomodoros uh, timers standing desks um, etc what are the main tools you use for productivity and why sure sure i mean i i love it i mean i should blog about it but uh i'm deciding i have some domains i might I'm just deciding about where to put the content and get time to write it. But yeah, Pomodoro is definitely one. It's it's it could be complicated, it could be simple, but the main point is is it's a a set amount of time of work and a set time of break. Uh, usually it's 25 minutes. I set it to 30 minutes. Um, 30 minutes work, five minute break. 30 minute work, five minute break, and then usually take like a 10 or 20 minute break after three sets. And then you don't just work on anything during that that block. You work on one thing in that block. And you, so I have like a Google Doc and I chart my day before I work as best I can. And then I try to write my day in blocks. So, and I try, like you said, you have your team like work for this amount of time on this task. So I try to do the same thing. I try to say, this task is going to take me probably three or four Pomodoros, maybe, or, you know, so then I block off two hours and I work on that Mm -hmm. task. And then I, between breaks, I, if I'm at home, it's pretty cool. I get to go see my kid or get a coffee or a tea or, or tea or whatever. And, uh, and then I, I show the timer <laughs> to everybody <laughs> and they're like, Oh, can you come do this for me? I'm like, I got three minutes left on my break. Yeah. I figured do it in three minutes. And, uh, that's where the robot comments come. But, uh, but it really kind of trains your brain and you think like in 30 minute work sets and then you mm-hmm. kind of estimate what you can do in that amount of time. And then you write out. So like blog posts, I write for like 30 minutes break, 30 minutes break. And uh, yeah, then you measure about how much you can do in that amount of time. So I try to write 2,000 words a day. And uh, I do that right in the morning, first thing, 8.30 a.m. till 9.30 a.m. to two sets, 2,000 words, uh, one hour. And uh, and then, yeah, like I, I set everything. And it's basically a timer that has 30 minutes automatically programmed with a five-minute break. And it basically keeps going. So I can't even stop it. I could, I could turn it off, but it, it automatically keeps going. And then uh, I use brain.fm. It's a, it's a paid subscription service. It basically has a sounds that you can put on your headphones that is 30 minutes long. So that's why I do 30-minute sets. So it starts at 30 minutes and stops at 30 minutes. And it's very focused, like no voice music. It's just like... uh different types of music based on your work setting and it really helps me focus and uh, I turn up the volume I can't even hear stuff around me um, and uh, so I those are my main sets it's like I write I plan my day in a journal uh, with Google Doc 30 minute sets each get the Pomodoro clock timer and uh, breaks and brain.fm um, is the main the main thing and uh, just for some some people probably don't know what a Pomodoro is, what what is that? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. It's basically, it's actually an Italian word for tomato. <laughs> uh, I don't know why the guy thought of it. It's an Italian, I should know his name, sorry. Uh, maybe we can try to link it in the notes. But it's a, like an Italian author or, or doctor that thought of this method. And he wrote a book, I think it's called Pomodoro Method. And uh, it's, a, it's a short book. I've bought it. It's like 10 bucks or something. Uh, but uh, the main point is, you set this timer. His is, looks like you can buy it from him. It's a 
certain amount of money. It's like a tomato and you can twist it and it counts down a 25 minute Pomodoro with a five minute break. Mm-hmm. And that's one Pomodoro. Um, but yeah, basically I think it doesn't have to be 25 minutes or 30 minutes, but basically it's the point. I don't know how he did his study, but the point is like people work better when they know the beginning and the end of a task rather than I sit down at my desk and I'm going to work and I don't really know what I'm going to work on and I don't know how long I'm going to work on it. And then when I finish that one, I'm going to go to the next one, but I don't know when that one's going to start and when that's going to stop. So he, you know, at first it seemed weird when I was reading about it, but it's, it kind of does make your brain, it trains your brain and your, your, you plan your day around it. So sometimes I'll just tell my, I don't have friends that do it, but if there were uh, friends that did it, or maybe you're in the same office, if you're, say your whole team was built on Pomodoro, you could all sync, like, okay, guys, let's do one set, let's go. And you just sit there, right? And then you could say, hey, after this set, let's go out for lunch. Or after this set, let's go watch a movie. Mm-hmm. But then you, you just feel so much more effective because you really just, you're supposed to block everything else off, you know, Skype, block out uh, any kind of chats or uh, any kind of distractions from it and just work on that one thing. And, uh, yeah, it's based, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know the author's name, but uh, it's Italian. We'll find a guy. We'll okay. I mean, uh, it's also, you can also download an app, like you can download the Pomodoro app to your phone yeah. and then it just kind of blocks out text messages, any anything unrelated to what you're doing in that moment. Turn off the internet yep. on your phone, and, you know. That's why I'm bad on WeChat. Yeah. I think like you were in some WeChat groups and I'm, because the thing about not just picking on WeChat, but all these new tools like mm-hmm. Slack is awesome. But the problem is they're all just expecting like immediate Immediate messaging. responses. So it's it's really kind of a going against some of these productivity tools or or methods because that's the the productivity tools are about batch work mm-hmm. and blocking out everything and only working in batches. So, um, yeah, for for me, I kind of I the way I work is more like I I work in long spouts. So like I I've tried you know shorter on one of my best friends also works similar to you he does 30 minutes or 45 minutes and takes like a 15 minute break uh but like for me i find that i get into like a grind and once i get into that grind i don't want to stop because it's hard hard for me to build up the momentum again so there are times i just skip over the break if i'm really in a flow but uh but yeah, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying it just—it's hard for me to. Sometimes it takes me a while to build that momentum. So like, I'll get into the momentum, and then I'll find like, once I'm in there, I could work four hours straight without taking a break and you know not talking to anybody or whatever. But that's kind of tough for me these days because being more in the managerial role and then being in a startup and working so close to my employees, I have to answer questions like every you know, probably every 30 minutes or every hour, there's a bunch of questions that I need to answer and, and, and adjust and make sure that the ship is steering in the right direction. So, but, you know, I do try to, I do try to do the same thing well, and block off. Well, that's why another trick I didn't say is, well, I did mention earlier before, I, my, mostly I do my Pomodoro's in the morning before mm-hmm. lunch. Afternoon, I switch to maker management mode. Mm-hmm. And so it's two brains, two sides of the brain. My morning is like making, mm-hmm. writing, you know, like, production something and then afternoon is management so that's where i'm like chatting and calling and following up and project management stuff so that that's how i try to solve that issue but it's hard because then you get somebody asking you a a question in the morning and you want to reply but you know it's gonna mess up your routine and i try to answer something in that five minute break Mm -hmm. uh but like even this morning i broke i broke a set uh, I just couldn't. It was something about a, a travel issue. 
I was uh, booking and uh, it messed up one of my sets, so I didn't count it. Mm-hmm. But uh, and you detail these uh, productivity sets in your grind reports every month, right? Yeah, I, I learned this from a venture chill blog, uh, and I you know I try to follow it. Just some people ask me why I do it. I I don't really again. That's what I just experiment on my blog. Like, but yeah, I just try to write down how many. He basically, it was his idea. Um, venture chill guy but the idea was to uh compare last month to this month you could probably even chart it but it's all about data right so if you don't measure you can't improve so by measuring how many you do uh you can look it's kind of gets cool when you look at the data because then you're like wow i was more effective that week or that month or that day versus that day and you can kind of see what days of the week you're better like you're more effective like i'm usually more effective like in the beginning of the week which probably makes sense than in the end of the week um, but you can actually see the data and that's when it gets really exciting. Um, and then, yeah, especially if you put on a blog, even though you might not, exp- I guess people read it or something, but you know, uh, you're like, you kind of got to report to the internet. Like, was I, uh, working hard this week, month or not? <laughs> I mean, uh, the influence is that you have people who read your blog like me. I was just looking at it. I was like, oh, that might be something that I might be interested in doing is just measuring, you know, uh, my productivity on a monthly basis and just having that up there and, and examining it, you know. Um, so I'm sure there'll be quite a few people who end up doing exactly the same thing that you're doing, you know. Cool. Great. What is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in your business? So Pareto's 80-20 principle. I think a lot of these, Mac, I, I used to be a Mac here. I think there are a lot of us that were just never going to be on Mac, but I'm using Mac. Um, and I, I buy these Mac apps like... And I used to be the guy that would never pay for software, uh, but now I just buy it because it's not worth me trying to get around it for ten bucks or something, anyways. So uh, I buy all these productivity t- app add-ons or these uh, these shortcut keys. Like my favorite launcher app, I don't know if you, you know, like uh, is Alfred. Alfred. And uh, I've done before. Yeah, I love that damn thing, and I. I pay for it. It's like 30 pounds sterling or something. And, uh, I set shortcut keys like crazy and I sync it to my Dropbox so I can use it between different computers. It's crazy. I just do, I so save so much time by having saved clipboard things and, and, uh, and like control different controls on my keyboard to go to certain websites and to do certain searches. Uh, it's amazing. It saves me so much time. I, I, I wish I could. I think it actually measures it in the back somehow. I have to check, but it's amazing. It, it's like 30 sterling or 20 sterling and it's amazing uh if someone were to understand you better what three books uh it could be books blogs or podcasts should they read listen to there's a saying or somewhere i mean i've been reading so many books just the last few years more than my whole life probably but there's a saying somewhere it says if you look at really smart and rich or successful people probably most of them read books mm-hmm. if you were to ask them but then again the majority of people if you ask people if they read a book the majority of people will say they don't have time, <laughs> but life is all a, you know, a life. Life is about controlling your time, uh, and choosing with your time what you want to do. So, I would, I guess, I'm going to limit this to books um, because I, books are definitely more of an in- investment. Um, so, I would say uh, my favorite one. It, I heard it on like a James Schramko periscope i think with like dan norris doesn't name drop in here but i was just a listener but uh psycho cybernetics it's like a 1960s book and it's amazing it's a 
basically about your mindset and about like your priorities in life. Uh, I forgot the author, but I could send you after. I'm bad at remembering authors, but it's an amazing one. Try to buy the original. There's like remakes, but try to get the original. I got the hard copy. Um, I could give you. Ex- Do you want me to explain it or? Yeah, sure. If you if you want to talk about it a little bit. So the the high level is basically deep digging into yourself, your subconscious mind, and the point is your life is actually what you do in your conscious mind. Like right now, the words you're, we're speaking and what we're thinking is really a, a result of what our subconscious mind thinks is reality, which sounds like really woo-woo and crazy. <laughs> but uh, if you really dig into your subconscious mind and uh, try to understand your thoughts uh, and why you're thinking those things and what you really want with your life, it will control your decisions in your conscious life conscious state so we're making decisions all throughout our day and all those decisions are basically your subconscious mind telling your conscious mind what to do to get to the goal that you want to get to um so it's like a really short thing about the book but that's basically the book says that over and over and over and with examples and it's a, it's a guy that used to be a plastic surgeon it's written by a plastic surgeon that would give women or men like facelifts or or breast implants but he's noticed some people would be happier after and some people would be not still still miserable and it was really not about their face the looks or their breast size or whatever it was more about their mind and how they saw themselves in the mirror so it's just an amazing book uh so he talks about that and he studied it a lot and uh it's a cool one um understanding me i guess i hate plug my own book i've written a couple but one i think is a short one it's destination china it's uh, basically kind of based a little bit on my first year in china like my blog uh kind of talking about the mindset to come here and set up a business hiring the, i talk a little bit about that sourcing problem i had and and other issues so you know it's like a six dollar amazon book or i could if you guys email me i could send you a free one or something i guess i don't care about six bucks some people think uh it's gonna make a difference. Um, and then uh, the third one is Trickle Down Mindset, another mindset book. Uh, it's really a not famous book. It's got like three or four Amazon reviews. I don't know. It was written like just last year. I I got it because I got an email about it from somebody, and it's sad because I I really think that more people should read it and give it feedback. I gave him a feedback. It's just a, a Polish guy. Um, he doesn't even speak English as his first language, but he really digs deep. It maybe it hits certain people differently, but it really gives you straight up instructions on how to structure your your priorities in life. And just like the name of it is called trickle down mindset. So, you know, a lot of people say, "Oh, I'm fat and I got to lose weight," or "Oh, I'm I, I uh, uh, I'm not happy. I don't got the girl I like, or I don't have a girlfriend or a boyfriend." Or it's always about that's like the the result. It's back to that psycho-cybernetics, but it's more about trickle-down mindset. It's more about fixing your mindset before. It's not about being fat. It's about maybe not being comfortable with who you are or not care. You know, it's it's more deeper mm-hmm. rather than trying to buy a magic pill or get a new weight loss diet thing. It's more about your deeper inside. So it's another good one. Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that reminds me of one guy that I knew back in Toronto. He had this quote that he always used to tell me all the time. You, you'd say that, like, um, if you're a negative person, you're always going to be negative in every aspect of your life. If you're a positive person, you're always going to be positive. And the example you'd use is, like, if, you know, I won, if you won 
a you know the the lottery you won 10 million dollars and you're just generally a negative person a negative person would look at that and say oh i won the lottery now everyone's going to ask me for money you know they're just going to look at the negative downsides and exactly. the positive person would be like oh my god i won the lottery now i can help all my friends and my family get through whatever tough situations exactly. they're in so exactly it's, just, it's a, like i guess it's your mindset you know it's whatever your mindset is it's, is what, what you how you're going to react right i mean there's all of these kind of tricks there's so much to it there's like yeah i mean it's it's life i'm still learning but yeah i mean it's the way, yeah, it's the way you think and the way you react to things around you in a way you're kind of pre-programmed in your subconscious mind to react to something. What are the top three apps you use every day? Well, if I'm on Chinese internet, I have limited options. <laughs> 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 but uh, if I'm not on Chinese internet, uh, I ha- maybe it's two different answers, I guess, but... If I'm stuck in China, I guess I have to use WeChat for everything because I think that's the only app that works out of my phone. Maybe Evernote. Uh, I love Evernote. Um, I recommend people to use it because a lot of times our internet doesn't work, especially in China. So I can get my notes offline and I can save my notes when I'm offline. And so I use Evernote a lot to uh, jot things down. Um, and I wanted to think of a third one. That's more creative, but I really live off my Google Calendar. <laughs> I, I, you know, um, it sounds basic, but I schedule like I don't put my Pomodoro as my schedule, but you know, I think having my calendar and really following my calendar uh, has helped. It's not such a fancy app, but actually putting in every event in my calendar and trying to really follow what I put in there and really restrict. I don't really block off my mornings. I should actually do that so that uh, I really, but I mean, it's, it's programmed in, but I try to make sure I have nothing in there that's uh, kind of violating my, 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 my schedule. Speaking of Google Calendar, I just feel like Google has slowly but surely taken over my life. Like I didn't plan it. It was like a subconscious thing <laughs> because like all these other apps that I use just happen to integrate with Google. And then eventually I found that like, you know, some of my scheduling apps and like my, like Asana and stuff like that are linked into my Google Calendar. So by default, I've started using Google Calendar for, you know, scheduling out my day. You know, it's just it's funny. But I, I think it's it's super effective. And like you said, you know, I think it's good. And, it, and like I was just saying, it integrates to everything. So it's, it's one of the best yeah, yeah. tools you could use. Yep. Do you have any general advice for tech entrepreneurs out there that might be interested in the Asian market? Um, of course, it's a very, t- it's very co- Asia. I guess we both are fascinated by it. That's why we're here. But it's a very dynamic and challenging market. So my normal answer is, a lot of times Western companies fail in China's because they just think they need to translate something to Chinese or to maybe the different Asian language and they will win or do well. But of course, especially in China, that doesn't work. Um, I'm really proud of Uber. I'm so proud of Uber. They're like one of the, the only or main, well, maybe Evernote's also working in China, but, um, basically they're starting to learn that you can't just translate the app into Chinese and uh, it will work in China. They actually have to localize. And that means like it integrates like Baidu maps or it has to integrate with the Chinese services instead of Google mm-hmm. or, uh, 
And also you kind of got to be separate, separate it from your US or your, your home country's operations. Cause it's not going to be as simple as just having the language changed. So you're really going to have to be flexible enough to have a completely almost separate code base, separate server. You really got to just be willing to go deep in with China. Well, if we're talking about China specifically, you got to go in deep in with China, uh, all in with all their WeChat and all their, Chinese servers and Baidu's and you got to just, you can't complain about it. If you want to do it, you got to do it. So, uh, you know, of course other parts of Asia aren't as challenging or as separate or independent as China, but even in other countries, you really got to kind of like respect that culture, that people and understand what drives them to use that website or that app. Um, and probably have local people that are working on it. You know, a lot of times the U S thinks they can kind of, uh, basically just translate something and run it off from the U.S. office or kind of hire a sales team in Indonesia and uh, just have them all ask management in San Francisco um, for approval on everything. And they'll usually fail because it's too slow. It's Asia is so fast and so different that you kind of got to just let that team run, run on their own. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you – obviously, you're a – serial entrepreneur and like we just talked about all the things that you've done uh what do you see yourself doing in 10 years um so it's pretty a little bit radical but it's you know i think the next stage is uh is something in the financial space or in the kind of government space i don't want to say government but you know i just am just to, we're talking very early in the show about banking and it's just really making me upset actually um so you know as far as a business standpoint i'm probably gonna just dig deeper into this corporate banking problems for business owners i'm pretty fascinated by that uh i don't exactly know where it's going you know i i don't want to call it lean startup but i just think it's always better to just care about your user or your market and problem rather than a solution so i'm kind of like finding the solution as i go um but I definitely think it's like a 10 year longer kind of challenge is this kind of like this battle between the entrepreneur and the digital nomad and the governments and the banks is going to keep going, I think, for a long time. And I'm going to try to stay in this as long as I can, as long as I can handle it. And uh, yeah, I mean, wife and I were just talking about it for lunch. But, you know, it's, of course, raising a kid in China is a little bit of a, a little bit of a challenge. But uh, we're planning to do that, plan to be here long term. So uh, still, of course, keeping an open mind and can't say everything in stone, but probably be here in the south of China for for the long term, foreseeable future. Awesome, awesome, um, man! Thanks for coming on the podcast. I've I've just been sitting here constantly, getting my mind blown as I was talking to you. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are going to learn a ton from this episode, and and I know you're busy, so you have to get back to get back to the grind. But yeah, yeah. If, if people want to reach out to you, where can they get? Where can they find you? Sure. Well, we mentioned them on the sh on the show today already, but I guess I'm focusing on mostly two websites domains right now. Is uh, my personal blog where I talk about if you want baby photos and productivity uh, pukes. I guess uh, go to mikesblog.com. And if you want uh, more of Hong Kong, a little bit of China business, uh, go into globalfromasia.com. And uh, I'm jamming it up with blogs and podcasts and everything. So those are my my two main places and hey guys man thanks for listening if you want to reach out to me 
that's uh, you can email me at info at sourcefindasia.com info at sourcefindasia um, and of course we have Facebook sourcefindasia Instagram sourcefindasia and Twitter same name thank you guys cheers we are always running for